0: From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today, we're going to be talking about something really big, climate, and how it's defined. And then we're going to be talking about something really small, the microenvironments of cancer cells. And then, as we always do on this program, we're going to put two scientists who research these things together and try to build connections. The climate scientist and the cancer biologist, that's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Each week on this program, we bring two researchers together to talk about different areas of science and to try to build connections between lines of research that don't always seem like they're all that connected. Joining us on the line from Boulder, Colorado, where she's a doctoral candidate working on the diversity of El Nino events is Danielle Lemon. Last year, she was the first author on a paper that sought to quantify what makes an El Nino event an actual El Nino event. Danielle, thanks for joining us today.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Also with us on the line and also from Colorado, but over in Denver, where she studies the molecular pathways that regulate the progression of cancer, is Bonnie Bullock. She is the first author on a soon-to-be published study on cancer microenvironments. Bonnie, I'm glad you're here with us today. Hi there. Let's start today by talking about the weather.
2: How still we see the light.
0: Okay, why are we playing Christmas carols at this time of year? Well, it's because we're about to talk about the weather phenomenon known as El Nino, a warming of sea surface temperatures that occurs every few years along the equator and then the Pacific Ocean, and which is called El Nino, which is a Spanish phrase that refers to the Christ child because it traditionally occurs around Christmas. We've been talking about El Nino for more than 120 years, and yet we don't have a great way to quantify what is and is not an El Nino event. Daniel Lemon, this shocked me. I grew up in California and El Nino got blamed for pretty much every crazy weather event that ever happened. I suppose I just figured someone knew what it actually was. Did it surprise you when you learned that everyone who has sought to define El Nino has chosen a slightly different set of metrics to do that?
1: Well, not really, because the way that you define El Nino has a lot to do with the context in which you're talking about it. What we think of as El Nino, many people, if they even know what El Nino is, they think about El Nino in very static terms. And what my research seeks to redefine is to think about it in dynamic terms and that there are lots of different diverse types of events. So, for example, there are two agreed upon types of events, a central Pacific El Nino and an eastern Pacific El Nino. The main difference between these two is how big they are and where they happen. The Central Pacific El Nino might have different impacts all over the U.S. than in Eastern Pacific El Nino. And we've seen this happen time and time again where people are underprepared because they don't quite understand how those predictions work.
0: You know, you mentioned, you know, if people even know what an El Nino is, and we record this show from Utah, where I think a lot of people associate it maybe with snow events. You are in Colorado, but let's maybe take a step back. Broadly speaking, what is an El Nino event?
1: It's not a perfect analogy, but if you can think of the seasons as Earth's primary heartbeat or its primary pulse, you have winter, spring, summer, fall. Winter, spring, summer, fall. It's like a heartbeat. El Nino is like Earth's secondary heartbeat. You have El Nino, La Nina, El Nino, La Nina. It's more irregular, which is why it's not a perfect analogy. But it's the reason for any combination of cold versus warm or dry versus wet. Not only does it happen in the ocean, it also happens in the atmosphere. It is a fundamentally coupled phenomena, which means that the air changes the ocean, changes the air, changes the ocean. And that disturbance over the entire Pacific Basin changes weather worldwide.
0: Can you talk about some of the ways that people have sought to put a metric to this phenomenon in the past?
1: Oh, boy. (laughs) I am not the first researcher to try and attempt to quantify this phenomena. It's defined by where it is and how strong it is. It's either in the Central Pacific or in the Eastern Pacific, but we don't define how unique that El Nino is. We don't define whether it fits into what our preconceptions are of El Nino.
0: What is problematic about that? Like from your standpoint, like when you looked at that and you went, okay, but there's still a question to be answered. What was that question and why did you want to answer it?
1: The reason why that picture is incomplete is because the way that we think about impacts of El Nino and what El Nino is going to do for us is we take all of the past El Nino events and we average them and we say, this is the effect of El Nino around the world. So you might average November, December, January of an El Nino year and look at the corresponding temperature and precipitation anomalies. But if it's a unique El Nino and you're not sure how those connections are going to manifest, you need a metric to be able to say, hey, this is not like other things that we've seen before.
0: So once you built a metric that you felt like you could trust, you applied it. And you saw something something really fascinating, a recent shift. Can you talk about that?
1: That recent shift is a huge matter of scientific debate in our community. There has been an observed shift to the Central Pacific El Nino type. And the Central Pacific El Nino type has very specific what are called teleconnections. Essentially, you have warming in the tropical Pacific basin. The air above that warm water feels that warmness, and the air above that feels the air above that feels the air above that, creating bridges to other parts of the world. In the observational record, we see more Central Pacific El Ninos coinciding with the rise of global warming. It's interesting because Central Pacific El El Nino events, because they are not as strong, they are harder to detect in the historical record. So that historical record, it's very possible that it's not trustworthy to be able to say that there's this observed increase in Central Pacific El Nino events. But at the same time, the coincidence with the increase in Central Pacific El Nino events is really happening more with global warming than with the satellite era. I wish that more people understood that those events don't all manifest in the same way and that we need to be prepared, not only as citizens, but we need to be preparing our policymakers for understanding the different types, the different diversities, and where that diversity might be headed in the future. While overall climate models agree with what diversity is in the historical record, there's a large variation. It's not really clear which models we should trust and how we should think about what El Nino diversity will look like going in the future.
0: That totally makes sense. And what your metric shows is that this very big, very complicated phenomena is potentially being impacted by global warming. Yeah.
1: There is a trend called the cold tongue mode. And that cold tongue mode is cooling in the eastern Pacific relative to the western Pacific. It's a really big global warming signature. In fact, if you analyze it, you will see that cold tongue mode is about 80% correlated with global average temperature. So we have really good reason to link this increased El Nino diversity with global warming. But we also have questions about whether we can trust that given the integrity of the observational record.
0: That's Danielle Lemon, whose study, which was called A Metric for Quantifying El Nino Pattern Diversity with Implications for Enso Mean State Interaction, was published last year in the journal Climate Dynamics. Danielle, will you hold the line and listen in as I chat with our next guest? I cannot wait. Let's turn now to the subject of cancer.
1: I'm counting
0: down the days to go. This just ain't living I you know. That is the definitively less peppy side of 21 Pilots doing a cover of the My Chemical Romance song Cancer. The song is dark, which is how an experience with cancer can feel to the 17 million people who get cancer each year. One of many rays of hope coming from cancer researchers is anti PD 1 therapy, which activates the immune system to target cancerous tumors. When it comes to lung cancer, though, it hasn't been the miracle that many people have been hoping for. So far, it's been effective only in about 20% of lung cancer patients. Bonnie Bullock, what, what's worse than the fact that immune checkpoint inhibitors only work in about 20% of lung cancer patients is that determinants of its success are really poorly defined. As someone who studies lung cancer, I'm sure that's, well, it's, it's both frustrating, I assume, but I also think it might be fascinating, like a puzzle that needs to be solved
2: absolutely. So there's been a lot of different studies and many, many clinical trials and it's only continuing to grow. In some of these trials, they've learned about some of the factors that predict response. But again, these are predictive. They're not necessarily mechanistically parsed out in the laboratory because you can't do research like that on humans. So we have mouse models in order to try to figure out what some of these determinants
0: are. And Your lab had previously found a different response to these kinds of therapies between two types of lung cancer cells. Can you talk about that and explain why that's important?
2: We are using mice with fully functional immune systems, and we are injecting spontaneously derived lung cancer cells that are actually from mice. We inject these cancer cells into the left lung lobe of mice and we let them grow for about two to four weeks. This kind of recapitulates late-stage human disease, so that kind of really reflects what is actually happening in the the human patients. One cell line that we have is called CMT167, and that cell line actually responds quite well to immunotherapy. The other cell line is called Lewis Lung Carcinoma, and when you actually treat those mice, they really don't respond to any therapies targeting the immune system.
0: You set off to find the mechanism for the difference between the CMTs and the LLCs, and you did this by genetic sequencing. What did you find at the genetic level of these two types of lung cancer cells?
2: We recovered just the tumor cells, RNA sequenced them, and we were able to see that the responsive CMT167 cells actually induced what's called an interferon gamma signature, whereas the LLCs had a much more blended response to interferon gamma. The interferon gamma is an inflammatory mediator that's very important for host defense, whether you get a cold or whether you inhale smoke or even cancer. As soon as interferon gamma is secreted into the tumor microenvironment, it can bind to cell surface receptors and signal through the cancer
0: cell. You went in and you silenced this gene that was responsible for this, and the cells that had previously been easier to kill became resistant. Conversely, you silenced a different gene, and you could make the previously resistant cells easier to kill. That must have been pretty exciting when you saw that happening.
2: Absolutely, yes. For the CMTs, which are the responsive cell line normally to to PD 1 therapy, we really wanted to know what genes are important in the interferon gamma response pathway that are making these cells responsive, and conversely, what genes in the LLCs are making them unresponsive to such therapy because hopefully this would be translatable eventually to humans. So what we had done in the CMTs was knock down the interferon gamma receptor 1. So these cells kind of lose their capacity to respond to interferon gamma. Whereas in the LLCs, we noticed they had really high levels of an endogenous interferon gamma inhibitor known as SOX1. And so we actually knocked down SOX1 in the LLCs. And by knocking SOX1 down, we not only made them responsive to interfering gamma, but we also made these cells now responsive to anti-PD-1 therapy in vivo.
0: When this happens in a lab, it happens really slowly over time. But I'm wondering if there's a moment in which it dawns on you what is in fact happening and how big of a deal it might be.
2: I think at certain points, you kind of get stuck in the middle and you really can't see the bigger picture. It takes, honestly, upwards of a year, you know, repeating things. After you see things start to repeat, then I think you feel much more like, wow, this might actually be important. This might actually be something. But that in between, that downtime where you're just unsure, it's a bit nerve wracking.
0: Now... You did this in mice, and I think that it's always good to remind people that mice aren't people. We can't just go turning genes on and off in human beings. What are the next steps in this research as you move this potentially toward a human model?
2: With the ongoing clinical trials in humans, what we really wanted to do is understand just specific factors that we might be able to bring to the clinic. SOX1 is only mutated in a very small percentage of human non-small cell lung cancers. But what our research would suggest is that we could potentially target certain downstream pathways that involve SOX1. You might be able to use what's called an anti-mimetic against SOX1 if if it's high at baseline in a human patient sample. And that might actually be used in combination with anti-PD-1. So That's really the end goal, is trying to go full circle and using some of the genes that we found and seeing if they can be used in the clinic.
0: I'm curious to know what brought you into this area of science, not just cancer research, but lung cancer research.
2: I first started in a cancer immunology lab in my hometown. I guess I was probably about 19. There was something truly fascinating in general, about cancer and the immune system to me, regardless of the cancer, but specifically lung cancer, I've known and had family members that have had lung cancer, and it's still one of the most heartbreaking diseases because we're still not truly improving a lot of patient, you know, the human condition when it comes to cancer. Lung cancer is a very stigmatized disease still versus, for instance, something like breast cancer because of the smoking. A lot of the time, patients that will come in won't even have smoked and they still have lung cancer. But I think that's what really is upsetting about lung cancer and that's one reason I wanted to study it because it's just one of those understudied cancers and stigmatized diseases. A lot of the time, it really has nothing to do with a patient smoking. It's just, you know, bad luck.
0: That's Bonnie Bullock, who is the first author on a soon-to-be-published paper on how tumor microenvironments impact the response to immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy and how that might be able to be altered. Bonnie, there's someone I'd like you to chat with. Sound good? Yes. Bonnie Bullock, this is climate scientist Danielle Lemon. And, Danielle, this is cancer biologist Bonnie Bullock.
2: Hi, Bonnie. Nice to meet you. Hi, Danielle.
0: I read something the other day that really made me think. It was from another climate scientist who pointed out that climate can be difficult to understand because there's only one Earth. There's no test group and control group. There's just one planet. And that got me thinking about something that another cancer researcher once told me, which is that there's really no such thing as a type of cancer because it presents in everyone in so many different ways. You each research at different ends of the spectrum. Danielle, you've got one test subject to work with. And Bonnie, you've got billions. And I'm not sure which one of those challenges is harder.
1: Oh, man. (laughs) I mean, and not to mention on top of that, you know, they're both incredibly complex, right? Like the earth is just as complex as a tiny little mouse is.
2: Absolutely. And I I really find, I think it was your analogy about the seasons of the earth are kind of like the earth's pulse. And it really is reflective of the oscillations that are really common in biology in general. I kind of think of the whole immune system and every cell in, for instance, a mouse's body is kind of like its own universe. And the earth is in that way too. There's just so many things that make everything tick when you're, you're looking at climate and El Nino related things. I think that the oscillations in the earth are very similar to what we see in biology with certain pathways. For instance, most people have heard of P53, which is the guardian of the genome. There's clear oscillations in that particular gene and how it signals, but goes up and down, up and down. And so I think that's one thing where we're related, I suppose.
1: You know, it's interesting that you say that because El Nino itself is a shutdown of a pathway, right? So... The whole reason that El Nino really happens in general, broadly speaking, is because upwelling off of the coast of South America shuts off. And that's what leads to the warmer waters. That upwelling brings up cold water. And as soon as you shut off that upwelling, that water gets really warm and so you know, you're a researcher investigating these small little pathways of these incredibly complex systems and trying to test how it affects the system and affects how your host reacts to different scenarios. The earth can be thought of as a host and how it reacts to different manifestations of El Nino. I, I see a lot of draw between that and how a test subject might react to different therapies and different uh, lines of cancer cells.
2: Absolutely. Looking at the El Nino events, do you think that over time, with more and more research on specific El Nino events, that they will be considered truly the same events, like in, in the um, umbrella of El Nino, Or do you think that they're going to be called something else than El Nino, because there will be defined features as we? You know, they actually, have more technology? actually
1: already kind of they call Central Pacific El Nino El Niño Madoki," and Madoki is Japanese for something like the same but different. So we already kind of do have people who say Central Pacific El Nino isn't really an El Nino. And how are we supposed to distinguish that? I don't think that the debate on that is ever going to settle
2: down. I am interested in the historical perspective of this. Your work has kind of gone back at least 130 years. So like when in history, out of curiosity, did people really start noticing? I mean, was it in ancient times that this, uh, do we have any record of that or? So I do know something about this. El Nino was discovered,
1: some people say in the 1800s and some people go as far back as the 1600s. El Nino Refers to the oceanographic phenomena of the warm water, and it was named that because it occurs, as Matthew said, around Christmas time. El Niño means Christ Child, and Peruvian sailors referred to it as warmer waters. In the early 1900s, I want to say in the 1920s, you have other scientists who are looking at the atmospheric pressure over the Indo-Pacific, and that refers to the Southern Oscillation. So, El Niño and Southern Oscillation were actually discovered at two different times. And then at some point, you know, we all kind of realized that this is the same phenomena because it's coupled. But El Nino was really discovered from Peruvian sailors noticing the warmer waters and total collapses of the fishing industry. Because when that coastal upwelling shuts off, it shuts off a stream of nutrient-dense water from the bottom. I do have a question about your research. You left off with a really poignant point about how sometimes people come in and they don't smoke and they have lung cancer anyways. And sometimes it's just about luck. In my research, I am very focused on the socioeconomic context of what I'm doing. And I can't help but wonder, you know, how often do some of those bad luck patients, are they epigenetically affected or they're people of color and they're handling intergenerational trauma? Do you know the types of research about
2: lung cancer and specifically epigenetically how they pulled the wrong card? So I cannot speak too much on the breakdown of that. I do know that in general, lung cancer is still the leading cause of cancer-related deaths in men and women. I'm sure there's a breakdown by ethnicity or race um, somewhere. I'm just not familiar with the data offhand. But I do think there, there is huge socioeconomic, uh, implications here because at least going back to the times when smoking was encouraged by large tobacco companies, it was advertised that smoking was okay. And so everybody smoked and now they're coming in however many years later with lung cancer. There's huge implications as far as how much money all of these treatments will cost. That is something that's extremely upsetting. I don't know how disproportionate it is, but I'm sure there is some sort of disproportionate amounts of people that have had cancer.
0: Danielle, we're going to be seeing that as the effects of global warming continue in years to come too, right? The projections are that people in low socioeconomic situations are going to be hit harder by these things and Bonnie's talking about how people who are in lower socioeconomic situations are maybe going to be not just get hit harder by cancers and in particular lung cancers but also can't afford the treatments there's some sort of an obligation there right
1: the fact of the matter is that global warming is going to disproportionately affect marginalized communities in so many ways including in how it might change el nino Global warming is going to put pressure on all of these systems. And I suspect health systems as well, because that cancer is affected, I'm sure, by pollution. Mm -hmm.
0: I sense a connection here in both of your research which is that you are on the cusp of research that helps us understand a phenomena that, will is deadly for a lot of people. We know already that climate change has been deadly for people, and it's going to be deadlier in the years to come. And of course, there's no question about the deadliness of cancer. I'm wondering, though, because science moves so slowly, because research by design needs to move slowly and meticulously Whether you just have to kind of put on blinders to all of that in order to do your work, lest you feel a little overwhelmed by the implications of both what you're up against and also how slow we're moving towards solutions.
1: There's lots of reasons that science isn't more immediately relevant right now. Some of it has to do yeah. with how slow science does go, and science and technological progress can sometimes be slow. I think it's good for it to be slow, and it's good for it to be thoughtful, but there's another piece that's missing there, and it's the piece that, A, we need to be a lot more communicative to the public and to our policymakers, and we really need to take a look at hegemony and privilege.
2: I am... Um field is very similar and building off your point of communication. I think what's extremely important is that I think every single paper should be rewritten or summarized in lay terms so that the public can understand generally what's going on and why it's important. I also think that there needs to be, you know, a lot more open outlets. So some of the research that people publish is behind a paywall at the certain publishing company. And so if the lay public wanted to learn about your research, they can't. They don't have access to that, it's really critical that researchers are starting to publish in more open access journals that everybody, taxpayers, have have access to because that's who's funding a lot of this. I think that will be extremely important in the future to kind of legitimize science and make people realize this is important. On this program today, I feel like we've talked about systems. And
1: all of these systems, they don't exist in a vacuum. And I think academia in general, is blind to that for many reasons, like being inaccessible and being a body of people who have gotten the best of education. And in order to really solve these problems, I think we need to have a real discussion about that.
0: Unfortunately, we're running short on time. Bonnie Bullock, thank you for joining us on Undisciplined. My pleasure. Danielle Lemon, thank you. Thank you so much. You can listen to Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. We recorded today's show in the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And we got a big assist today from one of our favorite guests, Rachel Kaspar, who introduced us to both of our guests. Thank you, Rachel. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.